guys. So my name is Michael. For those of you guys who don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar, and I hope you guys have been enjoying this nice, humid weather that we have been having. Yes? No? No, I hear a lot of no's. I hear some yeses. Kind of half and half. Seth's like, eh, maybe not. Uh, so to those who, that are new on this island, the humidity will get worse. Uh, the bugs will definitely get worse. Um, and so prepare for that. Uh, before my wife and I came to Okinawa, we actually lived in California. That's where I grew up. Uh, Haley grew up in the state of Hawaii. And what we would do during these summer times is we would spend the entire day at the beach because you had that nice California weather, you had that great sand, and it was just awesome. Uh, but in this Okinawa humidity, all I want to do is stay inside and turn up the AC. Anyone else feel that? Yes, amen. Uh, so what we do when we find ourselves indoors is we like to do things like read, uh, we listen to podcasts, uh, we do some computer work, but recently Haley and I have been watching this really awesome BBC series called Poldark. Have any of you guys heard of it before? Yeah? Okay. Um, so we love the show, and uh, the story takes place in England after the Revolutionary War, uh, in the show, the poor is an ever-present reality. Uh, they pray that the rain will remain on the sea so that their crops are preserved and that they'll have food for the next season. Characters go to prison for poaching in order to feed their widow mothers. And they fear the wealthy's belittling stares and their negative rebukes. And there, there is no middle income bracket. There's only the poor and there's only the rich, no in-between. And most of the rich community lord their wealth over the poor, um, except for a character named Ross Poldark. He is a different kind of gentleman and he's not like the entitled rich peers uh, that we are so commonly familiar with. But what he does is he serves the lowly and he rolls up his sleeves and he constantly is pouring himself out for the poor man and strives to continue to show them to be as equal in value and worth as he is. So similarly, James aims to address the same injustices and, uh, that is occurring among the churches in his day and age. And before we get into the text, I really want to encourage everyone here to remember and we receive the text through the lens of the gospel. As uh, Kyle mentioned last week, Christ has fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law for us, and now we obey out of joy. So with that, there are a few snares that you need to watch out for as you listen to today's text. The first one is that the text that we're going over today is not saying that being poor or being rich is a sign of godliness. This would be bad news for us because as we look around the room, you would see that we are probably the richest Christians that have ever walked the face of the planet. 
And we have been called as stewards of God's resources, not to squander the blessings of God, but to use them for his glory. The second thing we want to look out for is that both riches and poverty can hinder anyone from receiving God's grace. One of our greatest barriers for the rich to salvation is their pride, because they believe because they have riches that they do not need salvation. And for the poor, it's their bitterness, maybe from the pain and experiences that they have had in this life, So they hold that bitterness in front of them constantly, and that hinders them, and it bars the way for them accepting salvation. And lastly, the third thing that we need to watch out for is consuming yourself only with how other people are guilty, and that you become defensive in receiving the word that is meant for you, not necessarily for them. So I'm not gonna lie, today James has some harsh words to give to the church. Um, And we need to be prepared for that. But we have to receive it through the lens of the gospel, that we are adopted in sons and daughters of the living God, and we respond out of obedience and joy. But before we get into today's text, let's go ahead and pray together. Heavenly Father, uh, we come now before you as your sons and your daughters. Uh, God, thank you so much that we're here. Uh, Thank you so much that we have the resources to meet together in this room, uh, that we have air conditioning, uh, God, that we just have the blessings that you've given us. God, we just pray today that you would open up all of our hearts. Um, So often we can be closed off to you, but God, we just pray that you would open up our hearts, open up our ears to receive your word. Uh, Help us to respond, God. Uh, Help us to pay attention. Help us to uh, listen well. Help me, God, correct me from error. Prevent me from speaking falsely. Help me to preach the word and the word alone. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So starting in James chapter two, we'll read verses one through 13. Verse one. My brothers, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet, Have you not then made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen the rich who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you into court, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point 
has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become transgressors of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Noticing the theme of our selected text, our main point today is this, that we worship an impartial God. Therefore, we daily put to death the partiality that dwells within us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. I'll say it again for our note takers in the room, that we worship an impartial God. Therefore, we daily put to death the partiality that dwells within us through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. So James here is writing to Jewish Christians that were once a part of the church in Jerusalem, which James was a leader of, but have now been scattered abroad due to persecution. Um, and they've been scattered across Asia Minor, and most of them are now residing within Gentile communities. Now, this is a really important thing for us to understand uh, because it gives us some insight to James's heart behind writing this letter. I'm sure James knew personally many of the Christians that would hear this letter be read out loud in their congregations. He had a desire as an older brother for them to have a genuine faith and for them to live according to the calling that they have received. Knowing that, we hear older brother James saying earnestly, my brothers, my sisters, show no partiality. The hard words spoken are not uh, intended to limit their joy, but it's to protect them and to ensure that we are not deceived by the world or, bo or by the flesh uh, that remains within us, uh, so divisively impartial towards each other. Kids, your parents and your older siblings, I'm sure they actually do this all the time. Uh, has mom or dad ever told you not to eat all the Oreos that are inside the box? They know that Oreos taste awesome. Uh, in fact, you've probably noticed that there are less cookies when you get home from school. Um, <laughs> and because they're so awesome. But the reason that they do that is that, so that you wouldn't get sick and that you wouldn't have horrible stomach pain. Or maybe you've tried cutting your sister's hair with scissors and you start running after her and so she starts running away and then what does mom do? She stops you. She probably gives you a spanking, right? Um, or some sort of punishment or a timeout. Now why? Why does she do that? Because she loves your sister and she loves you dearly and the last thing that she wants is for either of you guys to get hurt. So it is in this love and concern that we must receive this command from James, but ultimately from our Heavenly Father. So what is the partiality that James is trying to stir us away from, and what does it mean? Partiality is basing your treatment, your attitude, or your thoughts of someone or something that should not be the basis of how you treat them. Words like favoritism or discrimination are also synonymous descriptions of partiality. 
Although there are many different examples in this passage, we see that the church in James's time is specifically being partial or favoring those with a superior economic status. So the book of James is not the only place where we see this word, and it is actually, this word partiality is all over the Bible to describe what God is not like. We see it in Deuteronomy 10, 17, uh, where it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. We also see it in Romans chapter 2, when Paul is referring to when God righteously judges the earth, and that he will not do so on any external attribute to sway his verdict, but he will render everyone according to what they have done, regardless if they are a Jew, regardless if they are Gentile, saying, for God shows no partiality. So looking at verse 1, James closes this verse by describing Jesus Christ as the Lord of glory. Jesus has the ultimate title. He has the ultimate power, the ultimate status, the one who is literally the heir of all things and the one who is above all things. And now let me ask you this question. How do we know that this great God is not impartial? We look at the perfect life of Jesus Christ. And during his 33 years on this earth, impartially we see that he dined with sinners. He healed society's outcasts. He healed the blind, the lame, and the leopards. Lost my point. He <laughs> befriended and called to be his disciples, society's lowest, mere fishermen. Yet he also called society's highest. He called physicians, tax collectors, and he called Pharisees. And in his salvation, his blood sprinkles many nations, regardless of nationalities or the color of one's skin. He forgives all who simply believe. This is the weight of our impartial God. And when we discriminate, we when we think or when we treat others based on external qualities, it is partly because we have forgotten God's character toward us. So in verse 2, we see the example that James gives to the church involving two economic statuses. We see the rich and we see the poor, the stark contrast of two very real realities that seem constantly divided against each other. Now, remember Paul, uh, Paul, Paul Dark, uh, we would hope to see this kind of love and concern for the poor that he displays uh, from the saints that are in the church that James is describing, but that's not what we see. We see two people in this scenario, both stepping into the same church. Uh, the rich man is treated with honor by the saints, and he is given the nice seat. So, in our Okinawa culture or our Okinawa life, this would probably be the seats that are underneath the air conditioning, like right over in the back. It's really nice, you get a constant airflow. The only time where that seat is not good is if it's in the winter and you start freezing your butt off. Uh, so the poor man is not treated with that honor. Instead, he is told by the saints to do one of two things. You can either stand, probably in the back, or you can sit down at my feet. 
I can't think of another cruel thing to say to another human being. Uh, imagine turn of the century. Leather sandals have absorbed all of the smells, all of the particles of a long day's work, as well as anything else that probably was accumulated along the way, like dusk, maybe dung. Um, and you were told to sit down amongst that. Being down at someone's feet is the lowest of the low. Uh, but Jesus, as we remember in the gospel, he placed himself directly in the position, in that position for his disciples in John chapter 13. And I think we'll have it up on the screen for you guys, but it says, starting in verse 12, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and you call me Lord and you are right for so I am. If I then, your teacher and your Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done. This is the very posture that the church is supposed to model. But instead of serving the poor and humility themselves, the church that James is writing to shows partiality only towards the rich man by giving him a good place to sit. So knowing this, James responds in verses four through six, saying, have you not made distinctions amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So now I really want to quickly mention how James uses the word distinction in verse four. Um, God calls us to discern. He does. He calls us to make a distinction between good and evil in our thoughts, words, and actions. However, distinction based on mere externals, such as economic status, is considered an evil form of judgment. And it has to have no place among the people of God. So the reader is pulled closer in by faithful big brother James, and he says in a serious whisper that those you are showing partiality to, those that you are discriminating against, are made in the image of God. They are heirs of the kingdom of God and an inheritance of infinitely greater riches and glory than of the rich of this earth. James gives them a rebuke of their guilty sin of partiality because they continually ignore the heavenly reality and, identi and identity through the negative treatment of other brothers and sisters in Christ. Furthermore, James even points out the irony of this actually in verse seven saying, aren't the poor the ones that were stirring up persecution and trouble for you guys? It's not the poor, it's the rich. They were after church's property um, and what little the saints possessed, dragging them into courts and leveraging their status and riches for their gain. James basically points out the lack of logic behind such actions and the duplicity of their faith. And perhaps that's a really good place for us to stop and think for a moment. Um, because although James focuses intently on comparison the rich and the poor, which is still a very real reality uh, in our day and age, 
The sin of partiality is not limited to economic status. There is discrimination against gender, ethnicity, nationality, weight, height, and we find the sin of partiality behind the curtain of society's greatest tragedies like the Holocaust, Rwanda genocide, abortion, and the slave trade. And I don't think there's a single person in this room who actually has not been a victim of this sin in one way or in another. But the reality is that we also have to acknowledge that each one of us are also guilty of this sin. You may be thinking to yourself, I'm no Hitler. And no, you're not. But let me ask you a few questions and really try to allow the Holy Spirit to speak into your heart. Service members, have you ever held the door open when you see your exo or your CO walking down the hallway? But then the next day, when you see some junior enlisted walking down toward you, you just walk out and you say in your mind, justifying yourself, I'm in a hurry. Kids, have you ever not played with somebody, maybe in your neighborhood or maybe at school, because they dress weird, maybe they act funny, or maybe they're kind of smelly? So you ask your other friend instead. Parents, have you ever judged a friend or neighbor's way of parenting their children because of their disciplining strategy? Obviously, your way is clearly better because you are all super parents. What? No? <laughs> Church members, have you ever uh, ignored somebody who walks through these doors because they are new? Or maybe they're clearly poor. Or maybe they don't exactly speak the same language as you. So you choose not to sit next to them. You choose to sit next to somebody you do know and maintain that conversation with. Ladies, do you pursue others that are not in the same life stage that you are in? Only diverting yourself to someone who you do know well, who you are comfortable with, and you can relate to better. Two more. Men, do you try to befriend the intellectual, the well-connected, the cool person of influence and interest only because of what they can do for you, neglecting relationship with those who you think have nothing to offer? And lastly, I think this is a good one for everyone to consider. Since we live in a foreign country, where do your thoughts go when you think of people who are not your ethnicity? Those who share the same background heritage or nationality, those who share the same country citizenship. Do you love them regardless? And do you think yours is better? These are all ways that we can discriminate, that we can show partiality. And James plainly says, as if it's not clear enough, that when we do this, we are committing sin and convicted under the law as transgressors. For we see that God has commanded that you should love your neighbor as yourself. And this is to be the basis for all of the laws of how people should relate to one another. And James, almost like an attorney, uh, knew that those who were going to try to, you know, those that were hearing this were going to try to justify themselves or they're going to try to deny it, saying, well, okay, maybe we haven't been, well, maybe we have been treating people a little wrongly. But at least I haven't committed murder, or maybe uh, I haven't uh, committed adultery or any of the other big commandments. My small, partial thoughts compare nothing to these. 
James foresees and counteracts their response in verse 10 when he says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. He argues that if anyone keeps the entire law, but stumbles in one point, that he is guilty of it all. Now, James knows that it is impossible for any one of us to keep the entire law. But for argument's sake, he assumes that it's possible. He says that kind of like the law is like a chain. It's like a single broken link can break the whole entire chain. Or maybe a single crack in a mirror can still make the mirror or the window broken. Ultimately, his point is this, that whatever the sin, it renders you as a lawbreaker. Now let's pray. No, just kidding. We're not going to stop there. Um, Gosh, as Christians, we believe, some of you guys believe me, like, oh, gosh. Like, man, geez, I can't wait till John comes back. Oh, my gosh, man, sabbatical. Oh. So as Christians, we believe that we are saved from God's righteous judgment through Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We lived, he lived the obedient life. He kept every one of his father's commands perfectly, and at no time, not for even a single second, did he think an impartial thought. And he suffered our penalty that we rightly deserve for our sin of partiality and all the other multitudes And he was risen as proof that the check that he had made in his blood was good. Mercy has triumphed over judgment, as James concludes in verse 12. And as Christians, we are actually called to receive his mercy and to obey. God's grace does not cancel our duty to obey him. It simply gives our obedience a new basis. We see that the law is no longer an external set of rules, but that is a law that gives freedom. It is a law of liberty, one that we can joyfully receive and willingly carry out. And it is our response of God's love and mercy that we carry it out because of the Holy Spirit's presence and power within us. So what do we do? What do we do as Christians when we see partiality? Um, Here are five things that I thought of that we can do and that we can use to combat it in our lives. The first is that we acknowledge the partial thoughts. Um, We be honest with ourselves. Um, We be honest with the attitudes and the actions towards others that we show. Uh, And we thank the Holy Spirit for illuminating in our hearts uh, that reality. And we give it over to Jesus Christ. Uh, Just as Colossians says that we take every thought captive and we make it obedient to Jesus Christ. Next, uh, within, almost within the next breath, we remember. We remember the gospel, that our God was impartial in saving you. We cling to Christ's work and not our own. As 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring you to God. Thirdly, um, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and with the help of community, we kill the remaining rebel tendency that lurks within us daily. 
When tempted to show partiality, we combat it, and we say things like, in the name of Jesus Christ, no. My God is impartial. I will not treat others this way. Next, we rest in the promises of God that are for you. As 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And lastly, we step out in faith and welcome all with the hospitality of Jesus. But what about the hurt? What about the hurt that people have caused us? What do we do with that? And this will be my final note. We as a community do not pretend that everyone here has it all together. We acknowledge that because of the fall, we hurt people and people hurt us. And if you are in Christ, God's word says that our only response is mercy. Now, this is not to say that we don't acknowledge the real hurts and the wrongness that has been done to us. We do that. And it's not wrong to feel those emotions. But the reality is that we cannot stay there. If we do, our hearts will become the perfect soil for bitterness and for hate. A lifelong lack of forgiveness and mercy will only reveal one thing in us, and that's that we don't really believe the gospel. We dismiss the reality that we are sinners and that we needed a good and a faithful God, an impartial God, to forgive us. James says this warning this way at the very end when he says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who shows no mercy. So in conclusion, uh, we worship an impartial God and therefore we daily put together the partiality that's in our hearts in community, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you are so good to us. Uh, You're so good to us in giving Jesus Christ as our Savior and as our Lord. Um, God, we just repent. We repent of the partiality, the discrimination, God, the treating other people based off of the externals. Uh, We repent of it before you, God. And just like we sang before, help us to do mercy. Help us to be merciful. Help us to act justly uh, as we walk with you, God. We are made in your image, God, and you have called us to be your agents, to be your ambassadors on this earth for the sake of the loss. Help them to be able to look at our conduct to see what you are like, God. And forgive us for when we don't represent you well. Uh, It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.